0: The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.TheWellHastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. I want to invite you this morning uh, to join me in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to uh, read through a number of passages from the Gospel of Mark this morning, so it's going to be hard for me to tell you to open your Bibles and follow along with me unless you're going to be really fast at page turning, which you're more than welcome to do, uh, but it will also be on the screen in front of you. Uh, We're going to move, I think, fairly quickly Uh, by God's grace. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. Mark says this. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, if you look down to verse 16 of chapter 1, If you look at verse 23 of chapter 1, Mark says that immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Now if you flip all the way over to chapter 10, if you're turning pages with me, and look at verse 42. Now, if you are flipping pages, you can turn over to chapter 14. Look at verse 61 with me. Mark says again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Turn with me to chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. Mark says, That when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi. Lamana sabachthani. Which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, Oh, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would come, and by the power of your Spirit, please help us to hear from the Gospel of Mark. Help us to capture the vision of what Mark wants us to see, and ultimately, God, what you want us to see about your son, Jesus. And in this season of Christmas, uh, with all of the, the swirling news and the culture around us focusing on At times, beautiful things like gift-giving and lights and beauty, God, help us to see the beauty of who Jesus is and behold him, to draw close to him as you first drew close to us through him. God, I pray that you would do this for us this morning, Lord. I know that you have promised that when your word goes forward, it would not return void and that in the preaching of your word there is power for salvation and so god i pray this morning that you would come and refresh and renew confront and draw sinners to yourself draw sinners like us to jesus who is the son of god uh, crucified risen and returning for us pray that you would do this and then some and trust you in jesus name everybody said Amen. amen amen hey one of my favorite debates Um, During the Christmas season, I'm sure um, you've been around long enough, you know that there are tons of debates in the Christmas season, right? That we can get into as believers. One of my favorite debates, and this might not shock you, it centers around the the validity of the Die Hard movies actually being Christmas movies or not. See, see, the debate has begun has begun. Christmas movies. I personally think that they are Christmas movies. It's my stance, okay? I can cite various authors that can prove it to you. Um, I believe that because they were mostly released right around the Christmas season, and there are Christmas trees in the movies. Uh, (laughs) Here's the reality. The reality is uh, whether the Die Hard movies are actually Christmas movies or not is absolutely debatable and useless, right? <laughs> but fun. Um, what's not up for debate, though, is this. I'm sure we would all agree with this. We wouldn't have to debate this. We would not debate the fact that those movies are action movies. Agreed? Okay. They are movies that have lots of fast-paced, fast-moving action built right into the storyline. And the same is true of the gospel of Mark. While Mark's gospel um, doesn't necessarily follow a geographical timeline that he went from this city to this city to this city in a linear fashion, uh, it also doesn't follow a chronological timeline in that Jesus did this first in June and then he did this in July and so on and so forth. It doesn't follow that. Um, what What Mark does do is he uses an action-packed set of stories to build a story. Um, Again, not necessarily in chronological order, not necessarily in geographical order either. He uses these action-packed stories to simply build a story that will focus on the powerful ministry of Jesus. And he's doing this so that we might see Jesus moving inexorably to the cross of Calvary. What Mark doesn't do is he doesn't give us an account of the birth of Jesus. He skips that. Mark, um, who is John Mark, if you didn't know. John Mark, he's the author of the book. And John Mark um, is the one whom Peter calls his son in 1 Peter 5. Um, historically, John Mark is known to be Peter's ghostwriter, meaning that the Gospel of Mark, as well as 1 Peter, 2 Peter, uh, were all written by Mark as he sits at the desk, with Peter kind of pacing back and forth in the background, if you will, um, saying, no, put this in there, no, take that back out, put this in there. Which is interesting when you think about the fact that in the Gospel of Mark, Peter does record through Mark, his own failures. Um, There's a humility uh, that was built into Peter in his experience of following Jesus. So John Mark was known to be Peter's ghostwriter. He was also known um, to be Barnabas' cousin, according to Colossians chapter 4. Also, if you were with us at all for the study of the book of Acts, or if you ever studied the book of Acts, you would remember that John Mark was the one who abandoned Both Paul and Barnabas during their first missions trip in Acts chapter 13. Uh, He was also the one who uh, was ultimately the cause of Paul and Barnabas' separation in Acts 15, right? Um, John Mark was also the one um, whom the Apostle Paul asked for at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4. So this is the John Mark who is the author of this gospel. He wrote this gospel as an action-packed narrative, just like an action movie. And all throughout the book, as you study it, you'll see that he has his eye set on accurately describing Jesus as the Son of God. Now, there's really three sections. and I don't think I have this outlined at all. But there's really, if you were to break the book up, there's three sections to the book. Uh, you would say that uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 What uh, John Mark is doing is he's laying the foundation for Jesus as the Son of God, who is the point of the gospel. First section. Second section is chapter 1, verses 16, all the way through chapter 8, verse 26. And in that whole section, uh, John Mark is trying to present Jesus as the one who invades both the country and the city with the good news. And then the third and final section uh, begins in verse 27 of chapter 8. moves all the way through uh, the end of chapter 15 and into, I think, some of 16 as well. Um, in that final section, uh, John Mark presents Jesus as the one who invades the hostile city of Jerusalem with the good news of the gospel. And so those are three ways of looking, or three sections, kind of headers to look at when you're studying this gospel. So at the end of the day, um, while you may not be convinced that the Die Hard movies are Christmas movies, just want to bring that back up again because it's important, right, to our conversation this morning. Um, You may not even be convinced that they're even really good action movies, okay? So you don't have to be convinced of that. It's not really important. What is important, and I think especially during the Christmas season, is to see that Mark's gospel is, in fact, an action-packed story. It's an action-packed narrative. It's an action-packed story about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, right? Now, I want to make one other point that I think most scholars or commentators will make about the gospel of Mark that further solidifies this view of Jesus, this view of Mark's gospel being an action-packed storyline. One of the things that Mark does throughout his uh, writing in the gospel of Mark is he continuously uses the word immediately, And he uses that word immediately roughly 42 times throughout the entire gospel. And he does this in multiple different ways, but primarily he does this to simply highlight this sense of action or this sense of movement or or, or immediacy in the narrative. What he's doing is he's describing the power as well as the effects of Jesus' ministry. Now, you might say, okay, who cares that he uses this word immediately 42 times? Um, What significance does that really have on how I read the book? Well, one way of looking at this is looking at this in terms of a comparison between the Gospel of Mark and the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. Okay, So again, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark uses the word immediately 42 times roughly. Um, but that word is rarely found in the other three Gospels. So that, that gives you significance. When a word is used that heavily, telling the same story in one author, but not used that heavily in others. So if you look at the Gospel of Luke, the word immediately is used one time. That's significant. If you look at the Gospel of John, the word immediately is used three times. Very significant. You look at the, uh, you look at the Gospel of Matthew the word immediately is used seven times. So why is this significant, that that disproportionate use, so to speak, throughout the four Gospels? Well, what this does is this tells you a little bit about the author's intention. As John Mark is writing the book, he has an intention in mind. That's why he uses that word. Overall, as you look at the Gospel of Mark, you think about the action-packed sense of it, that word immediately? I like think it's easy to see that God is fully active, right? That, that's, what, that's what John Mark is wanting to describe to us. Jesus is active. He's, he's fully active, God is, in this work, this immediately urgent work of providing a way of salvation for sinful mankind. And he's wanting to do that It was one and only Son. As Jesus comes into this world, As the suffering servant for all mankind. So. Mark's central theme. Woven throughout the entire book. Is simply this. Jesus is the suffering servant. But he's a suffering servant who is a man of action. As he heads intentionally. To the cross. For the sake of the lost. Now. Now along that theme all the way through. One of the first things that that Mark does is he presents Jesus to us as the Son of God, right? (laughs) If you look back at chapter 1, verse 1, Mark gives us what one author calls the headline to the gospel. He says this, because he wants to begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark says in the very beginning. That's the headline. I want to begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A way to interpret that would be this. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the point of the gospel. That's another way of saying what John Mark is saying in the opening line of this gospel. Now, the thing is, he doesn't just stop there. You look at verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, and he describes Jesus' baptism, right? By John the Baptist. And as he describes that baptism, he says that when Jesus came up out of the water immediately, there's that word, right? Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. So you may have noticed, right? That use of that word immediately in conjunction with the father's proclamation Over Jesus as his one and only son with whom he is very well pleased. What does that tell us when you see that word in conjunction with that proclamation? I think it's almost as though when we read it and we think about it, we get this sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency as God affirms Jesus to be his one and only son. And in this title, Son of God, when you think about this for a moment, the urgency of that title, that descriptor, the urgency of that descriptor, Son of God, gives us a striking balance between Jesus as a fully functioning 100% human being while at the same time retaining fully functioning 100% of his divine nature. Now, there were periods of church history where this became an argument as to whether Jesus could be one or the other, or could he be both? And um, the truth is, according to scripture, is that he was 100% both. He has to be 100% both to be the son of God and to be our savior. See, Jesus is the son of God. He's a man of action, right? He came to set the world free. Jesus is not a fairy tale. He's not a copy of a quote-unquote Greek God. He's not a passive God. He's not a distant God. Jesus is the Son of God who actively came to set the world free. But he's not just the Son of God, he's also the fisher of men, right? Shortly after his baptism, shortly after he is affirmed by God the Father as the Son of God, Jesus is doing what? He's traveling along on his motorcycle. No, he's not on his motorcycle. Well, I'm fully convinced he has a white one. He's traveling along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. As he's doing that, he stops and he calls his first disciples to come, to follow him, so they he could do what? So he could make them into what? Fishers of men, Right? Twice in this episode, this would be verses 16 through 20 of chapter 1. Twice in this episode, when you read it, Mark uses the word immediately, right? And when he uses the word immediately those two times, the first time he uses it to describe how quickly Jesus calls the disciples to come follow him. The second time Mark uses it is to describe the speed with which the fishermen began to follow Jesus to become. Fishers of men. The bottom line and the significance of this for us is that Jesus is the master fisher of men, right? He's the master fisher of men who makes disciples who are fishers of men. If you're not a fisher of men, you are not a disciple. That would be the connection. So he makes that connection. And the connection is between the calling and the responding, right? To do the calling, come follow me, become fishers of men. (coughs) And to do the responding, yes, I will follow you to become fishers of men. To do the calling, to do the responding, that that requires that the caller himself and the responder both have to be action-oriented people, okay? See, following Jesus requires... An active calling from God to you, and then it also requires an active response from you. See, inaction has no place within the category of making disciples. You think about that. The inaction has no place in the category of making disciples. You cannot say that you are a disciple of Jesus, yet live an inactive life as it pertains to growing in holiness and then sharing Jesus with others. You may go through dry periods, yes, agreed. But if by and large your story is that of inaction, the question becomes, are you a believer? Has the master fisher of men transformed you into a fisher of men? Now, I also think we have to notice when you're thinking about this category of Jesus as the fisher of men. You have to notice that Jesus didn't say, hey, yo, come follow me. I'm going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? It's not what he said. It's it's not there. It's not anywhere in the gospel accounts. Jesus' call to discipleship is much less about what he's going to do for his disciples, although we know that what Jesus is going to do for his disciples is, is a lot including dying for them. Uh, Jesus's call to discipleship is about uh, more about what he's going to do in them and through them. It's not about so much what he's going to do for them. It's what he's going to do in them and through them. In Mark's gospel when you think about this call to discipleship to be fishers of men. Discipleship for Jesus and his disciples, it's more about the contribution that they're going to make to the kingdom than it is about the benefits they're going to receive from being in the kingdom, right? This is a crucial aspect of discipleship, crucial aspect. The truth that Jesus makes disciples who are contributing, they're giving something, they're investing, that's the kind of fishers of men they are. Rather than consumers of products and experiences, users and abusers, they're not that. They're contributors, investors. That kind of discipleship notion from the Bible really challenges our Western notion of doing church. The fact, and I want to press this point one step further just so that you can see, I think this comes right out of the context, and in fact the core context of the Gospel of Mark. This fact that Jesus didn't just come to make consumers... But he came to make contributors. It can be underscored. If you look ahead to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we're going to come back to it again later, but I'm going to mention it here now so you can see it. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that he came not to be served. I didn't come to consume, he says. I came to serve. I came to invest, to give. That's actually the, the literal language, to give is to invest. To give his life as a ransom. See, this is is transactional language. But he's using transactional language like you would use at the bank to underscore his work of servanthood under the bullet point of transformation. I came to give my life as a ransom for many so that those many could be transformed. Now, this passage, most commentators would say, is probably the most important verse in this gospel because it summarizes Mark's emphasis on Jesus' road to the cross. And at the same time, it also highlights one of the most fundamental aspects of discipleship, namely this. If if I've lost you, it's namely this. Here's the fundamental aspect of discipleship, namely that discipleship is meant to be about active servanthood. Servanthood is not true servanthood if it is not filled with meaningful action. You see, for the church uh, to embrace discipleship according to Mark's gospel, then we would have to recognize that we are absolutely powerless to become disciples of Jesus, much less make disciples of Jesus without God's sovereign and transforming power and his help in becoming active servants, right? So At the end of the day, think about this. You know this to be true. We will all oftentimes fail, just like the disciples did. All over the Gospels, you'll see their failures. The Gospel writers were so good at writing their own failures into the storyline. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't call perfect people to become his disciples. Jesus calls broken rebellious, ignorant people to become his disciples so he can transform them into fishers of men. You and I, left to ourselves, would never be fishers of men on our own. We would never be investors. We would be abusers and users because of the sin inside of us. The idea at the end of the day is that Jesus came to be the fisher of men, to make fishers of men, who do not desire to be served, but actively desire to serve. So already we've seen how Mark's gospel is full of action as he moves forward quickly. Described Jesus as the Son of God, Described him as the fisher of men. There's still more. Jesus is also the one who commands silence. When you think about Jesus as the one who commands silence, it's easy for us to remember how he silenced the storms, or how he silenced demons from their antagonism of their subjects, right? We we probably remember some of those stories. But Mark describes um, some really interesting episodes of Jesus commanding silence, or you could say secrecy, uh, regarding a number of things, like his identity and his power and his mission here on earth. When you read these episodes of Jesus doing this, you can be kind of left wondering why. Why would Jesus command silence or secrecy regarding his identity or his power or his mission here on earth? Why would Jesus do this? Why would he sometimes command silence or secrecy? Look at verses 23 through 25 of chapter 1. Mark tells us that immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Why did he command silence? I think that when you read this episode, it seems like Jesus commands silence simply because he doesn't want to be associated with a demon who is speaking truth. Think about that. Why would Jesus want to be associated with a demon even if he's speaking the truth? And we can learn a lot from Jesus on the importance of resisting this syncretistic blending of the holy with the unholy in our pursuit of ministering among the lost and the broken. What association does the holy have with the profane or the unholy? For instance, if I were to use an illustration that would be um, very shocking... I would use an illustration such as this you would easily follow the rhetoric of the illustration the illustration would go this way what good would it do if a man such as me goes and does ministry in a strip club right so you can see the argument uh, in mark's rhetoric so to speak you look at another episode uh, jesus heals a leper then he immediately charges that healed leper to say nothing, right? Uh, it'd be verses 44 and 45 of chapter 1. He, uh, after healing the leper, he says, hey, see that you say nothing to anyone. But then in verse 45, the leper goes out and begins to talk freely about it, Mark says, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And Mark says people were coming to him from every quarter. So you look at this episode and you ask the same question, why did Jesus command silence? Why would he do that? Well, in this episode, I think Jesus commands silence so that he could simply get some rest from the heavy weight of ministry. I think it's pretty simple. Of course, we know that since this healed leper couldn't keep his mouth shut, Jesus was driven out of town, right? Couldn't even go into any other towns from the way Mark made it sound. And was even overwhelmed in the country by the sheer needs of everyone that was being brought to him. (coughs) Why is this significant to us in our view of Jesus? How does this apply to our lives? Why does this even matter to us? Well, first and foremost, (laughs) sometimes we would probably do well to shut our mouths. You know, just shut our mouths. Shut our mouths for long enough to rest shut our mouths long enough to enjoy the presence of God, right? When you think of the many ways that we open our mouths, even for the quietest among us, there's ways that we still open our mouths, whether it be our phoning a friend or rattling our spouse's ear off when they get home or jumping on social media, reposting things. Whatever it may be, there's various different ways that we open our mouths. Sometimes we probably need to shut our mouths and rest, Period. Find some silence. See, overworking uh, is, I think, probably one of the largest idols mm-hmm. uh, among Christians today. Um, overworking, I think, is an idol that most of us will cheer for instead of resist. And we, It's interesting how we do it. We do it apologetically, um, all sorts of different ways. We make excuses. It doesn't seem like the worst sin, but sin is sin, so... And now, at the very least, when it comes to overworking, uh, we give stars on charts, don't we? Uh, For those people that are really hard workers, people who just get stuff done. Hey, look, I give stars on charts for people who get stuff done. I like to get stuff done. It drives me nuts when things don't get done. I'm just telling you. Honestly, bad, because it's good for us to get things done. Good for us not to be procrastinators. But the flip side of this is also an issue, too. we give stars on charts to hard workers who really, at the end of the day, are probably workaholics in hard-working uniforms. And it shouldn't be that way. So I think we can learn something about Jesus commanding silence here, right? In this regard. There, there's a third way, I think, um, that Jesus does this when he commands silence. Um, and, and before I go to the passage, the passage is going to be Uh, Chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. Um, I think as I I read this passage here in a minute, I want to set the table for us. I think it's important for us to wrestle with the fact that not everybody is ready to hear the truth. Does that make sense? Not everybody is ready to hear the truth. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to do the preparation of the heart for people to hear. Um, And sometimes really, look, we can take some pressure off of ourselves and understand that if somebody is not ready to hear the truth, they, they don't understand what's going on, um, we do not need to try to do the Holy Spirit's work in making their hearts be ready. So it's okay for us to still grieve that somebody doesn't understand the gospel, but it's important for us to be okay with going, hey, Spirit, that's your job, not mine, and in your timing, not mine. And that is hard to do, especially when you're looking across the table at somebody that you love deeply, right? Like a child or a spouse. or That setting the table, this is why I think Jesus says in chapter four, verse 11 through 12, he says to the disciples, to you, has been given the secret, there's that secret word, right? To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand. What I think Jesus is is, uh, doing for us here, and what Mark is describing, is that Jesus knew the balancing act of resisting the urge to cast our pearls before swine, while engaging in the fruitful work of proclaiming the gospel to people who are actually receptive to it. Listen, look, we can all waste a lot of time preaching and proclaiming to people who do not understand and do not get it, while at the same time paying no attention to those who are actually producing fruit. Right? Fruitful ministry and fruitful discipleship, fruitful proclamation of the gospel is important. Jesus Shows us that balance very well. He he, he not only knew how to command silence. But listen, Jesus also knew when to be silent. And I think that's something we could learn a lot from him. I think that we would do well. We would do well to build a better relationship with silence. Think about that. What's your relationship with silence look like? Because oftentimes I think what competes with us having a good relationship with silence is having a better relationship with chaos, worry, doubt, fear. And then our ministry becomes fruitless, because we don't have a relationship in silence with our Father. Now you might be saying, "What does a relationship with silence mean, Joe? I don't. That means that you regularly like Jesus. Move aside, find that silent place so that you and your father in that silent place, that your father can do the work of removing the chaos, removing the worry, removing the doubt, removing the fear. A relationship with silence is to have a relationship with God. That's what I'm saying. It's to build that relationship. I think in doing that, what would happen is if we built a relationship with silence using that kind of a language then I think what would happen is the words that we actually speak would be fruitful and winsome. So now, with that said, you look at one of the last instances of Jesus. And probably, I, not one of the last, but definitely one of the most perplexing instances of Jesus commanding silence. You look at chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, and Jesus asks his disciples, he says, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, he goes, you're the Christ. And we're all like, yes, Peter gets it right. Peter is like, gosh, this guy, well, this guy. I don't know about Peter sometimes, right? He gets it right. And Jesus, Mark says, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus not applaud the disciples? Hey, good job. You got it done. You got the right proclamation. Now go shout it from the rooftops. Why didn't he say that? It seems really antithetical to the gospel and the mission of Jesus for him to go yo hey don't tell nobody what you just said moms the word why i think i think the answer lies uh, in a better understanding of the maturity of the disciples okay at this point in mark's narrative again not chronological not geographical just accurate truthful action-packed at this point in Mark's narrative the disciples are still really wishy washy they're a bunch of fence sitters they can't even agree on anything uh, much less they they can't even stay out of these little petty arguments about who's going to sit on Jesus's right side in heaven as though they think they understand what that's actually going to take right so I think when you when you take that into context when Jesus says this I think the bottom line is that while their answer is definitely right, it's probably all that they had right. They could proclaim Jesus as being the Christ, and that's it. I don't think that they even understood what proclaiming Jesus as the Christ meant. If they had gone out and made these bold statements, shattered them from the rooftops in public, I don't think that they were yet equipped to even answer any follow-up questions about Jesus Or his kingdom. So I think what's happening here is when Jesus commands silence, he's basically saying, hey, it'd be a lot better if you would stay silent until you're fully trained. Right? This, to me, would be like telling a six-month medical resident that he shouldn't perform surgeries until he's properly trained. Like, we would get this, right? You should not perform any surgeries until you're properly trained, until you possess the right degree before doing a bunch of damage to another human body. Okay, Um, it's like nowhere in the world do we apply immature principles to our discipleship or to our training than when it comes to discipleship. You're following my argument? We we Christians have this uncanny knack for going, oh, you proclaim Jesus, go shout it to the world. No, whoa, whoa, bro. But before you do, let's make sure you got what you need to go do that. Like even the basic truths of the gospel can, can be a destructive sledgehammer in the hands of an immature believer. So let me, let me just challenge us with this. If you've been walking with Jesus for longer than six months, um, and you have not yet leaned into the work um, of growing in maturity in your relationship with Jesus, and yet... Think that it's okay to sledgehammer people around you with the truths that you know. I would just want to say, you're probably not doing the work of the Holy Spirit. You're probably doing the work of an immature believer who needs to grow. So I would encourage you, jump into some good discipleship so that you might grow. So that you're not like a sledgehammer or an untrained doctor tearing up bodies. All in all, uh, when Jesus does command silence, right, he does this sometimes for the purpose of not associating with the evil. He does it for the purpose of protecting periods of needed rest, not casting pearls before swine, trying to ensure that the message bearer is fully trained and equipped to communicate the gospel. You might be saying, okay, this all does sound important, but there are some further reasons why this is so important as we make our way through the gospel. We're not only talking about Jesus As the Son of God, we're not only talking about Him as the Fisher of Men, not only talking about Him as the One who has authority to command signs. We're also talking about Jesus as a suffering servant, as Savior. Now, the fact that Jesus is our suffering servant Savior probably doesn't shock you, right? Like this is proclaimed well, mostly by churches. Probably doesn't come off as a great surprise to you. But I think it's worth noting this: that that's the theological theme that I think is the central theme of the Mark's Gospel. Mark sees Jesus as being a supernatural, suffering servant and savior of sinful mankind. You look at chapter uh, 8, verse 31, and he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So Mark is saying that Jesus is the suffering servant and savior who is in full control of his destiny. Jesus is basically saying here, hey, yo, I was never a helpless victim even in my perfection. You look at chapter 10, verse 33, 34. Jesus reminds the disciples again, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise. Once again, Jesus, long before it happened, he knew the full details of what it meant for him to be the suffering servant and Savior. And here's the thing. He never shrank back. If I knew those details about my impending death, I would run screaming to some other country as fast as I could. Jesus never shrank back from that identity. He ran headlong, straight forward towards the cross with all the energy of a man on a self-sacrificing mission. Right? Thank God for Jesus, our suffering servant, our Savior. Now, again, as I said earlier, if there was ever a key text by which to interpret all of the gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45, would be that passage. Again, I'm going to read it again. Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In context, that verse is a great case study for servant leadership, okay? In contrast to the kind of leadership that the world around us champions. What kind of leadership does the world around us champion, right? What kind? Uh, Get to the top. Attain power. Get wealth. Get better prestige at any cost to those below you. And that would be the context of where Mark talks about Jesus saying this about servant leadership. Jesus literally turns all of that worldly thinking on its head by being the supernatural suffering servant and savior who comes to ransom and to redeem the lost and the rebellious as he serves by giving his life away. Now, when you live out your identity in Jesus in a way that challenges this world's way of doing things, there's going to inevitably be some rejection, right? A rejection is actually something that should not surprise us. We should actually embrace it, because rejection is part of identifying with our rejected king. Rejection is painful, agreed? But rejection is actually part of what we are promised if we actually follow Jesus. He was our rejected king. Look at chapter 11, verse 18. After flipping the tables in the temple, we love that story, right? Because we envision ourselves flipping tables in churches that we're mad at not really the point of the story but we have a tendency to miss that after jesus has done that he's confronted the hypocrisy of the money changers there mark tells us that the chief priests and the scribes heard it they're seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching i like to call these guys the religious rats okay they're ugly <coughs> they're stinky Religious rats. They should, have, they should have embraced Jesus with open arms, should have affirmed Jesus as the true king. But these religious rats, what they do, they chose to reject Jesus instead. You look at chapter 12, verse 12. After Jesus points out that these religious rats don't understand that his identity is the cornerstone, they're going to stumble over him. Mark tells us that they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, uh, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. So, these religious rats. So, again, all of this dialogue here, all these storylines, Mark is trying to show us the true nature and character of these religious folks, the enemies of Jesus. Again, it's not about us going and flipping tables. It's about us identifying with the religious rats and going, am I a rat? Not only does he describe them that way, but he describes them also, along with other gospel writers, right? They're whitewashed tombs. They're a brood of snakes. They're a bunch of rats. They deserve nothing but total judgment. But on top of that, they're also a bunch of cowards. They're a bunch of cowards who hide in the shadows while they do their dark deeds of rejecting their true king. And once that rejection begins, there's no way to turn back the clock in Mark's gospel, or in any of the gospels for that matter. The rejection only gets stronger and stronger, especially in Mark as this action-packed story unfolds. At some point, Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. At the cross, everyone abandons Jesus. And immediately following his unlawful arrest, Jesus is standing right in front of the high council of these religious rats. Chapter 14, verse 61 through 64, Mark says that the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, Hey, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest did what? Oh, thank you, Jesus. The king. No, the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus' answer to the line of questions from these guys was simply to make a statement. I am. That's the statement that God would make. I am that I am that I am that I am that I always have been. He claimed to be God in that one short statement. And they rejected him. Later on, they pass him along to the Gentile courts, right? Chapter 15, verse 2. Pilate asks him, hey, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers him, you said so. They say, yeah, what you said is true. And Jesus' answer then leads Pilate to press the point further. In a public hearing later, speaking to all the Jews, chapter 15, 12 through 13, he asks these rats, (laughs) he says, hey, what then shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Hey, listen, at the end of the day, when you think about Jesus being our rejected king, If you've ever experienced that kind of rejection, please know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus experienced that pain as well. And that's necessary for Jesus. It's also necessary for us in God's wisdom. Because without rejection, Jesus could have never walked into his full identity as the crucified, risen son of God. This is our final point today. As we draw near to the end of the Gospel of Mark, I want you to step back with me for a moment. I want you to notice that Mark begins in verse 1 of chapter 1 by describing Jesus as the Son of God, right? And then he moves inexorably towards the cross, and he moves on to describe Jesus as the fisher of men, and then the one who commands silence, and then the suffering servant, and then the rejected king. And at the very end, he closes up his description of Jesus by coming full circle back around to the beginning, describing him as a son of God. But in so doing, at the very end, he attaches more words, crucified and risen, to that description. And he does it, fascinatingly, through the lips of a Gentile centurion on the hill of Golgotha, and then a bunch of grieving women who visit the empty tomb. After the horror of the crucifixion, once Jesus had breathed his final breath, Mark tells us in chapter 15, verse 39, that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The lips of a Gentile guard, a Roman guard, not the Jews, not the religious folks who should have, it was the lips of an enemy, confirmed this truth about Jesus. He is the crucified Son of God. It's fascinating. Mark also tells us in verses 6 through 7 of chapter 16 that when the women who visited Jesus' tomb on the third day found it empty with an angel sitting there, they stood in fear. And the angel said, hey, hey, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. You see, when Jesus promises something, it comes true. You can rest your heart, and your life on the promises of the gospel that when Jesus went to that cross and that when he left that tomb empty, that same victory is your identity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord God, as we close that you would help us to lean in to the full identity of Jesus, the Son of God, Suffering servant, rejected king, man who commands silence, fisher of men. Suffering savior, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.